You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Harry Taylor, a PhD researcher who focuses on the reaction of Britain to the Spanish Civil War. Harry has done a lot of research into information like how the Civil War was portrayed in British newspapers and the grassroots efforts to try and assist those experiencing hardship in Spain. We talked about many different topics, including milk tokens, a very ingenious way of bringing awareness to the public and of raising money for powdered milk to be sent to Spain. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Harry Taylor, a PhD student at Sheffield Hallam University, who's currently researching Britain and the Spanish Civil War. Harry, how's it going today? It's going well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Excellent. Okay, so we're here to talk about Britain and the Spanish Civil War. And so after the Civil War started, the national British press, uh, notably the Times and the Daily Mail, were perhaps not portraying information in an unbiased way. In some of your previous research, you contrasted this with a more local paper. How did those two kind of differ? Go ahead. So the ways in which the national press report this, the stories in Spain, do vary. Um, Certain newspapers have certain aspects that they promote more than others. So the Times is very much a a newspaper concerned with non-intervention. The the First World War is a very recent memory for a lot of people in Britain and and across the world, obviously. And there isn't an overwhelming desire for another conflict in Britain. People don't want another war. And the Times very much stays on this trajectory of promoting non-intervention. Britain has to stay out of the war to stop the conflict in Spain spilling over into a European or global conflict. That is very much their line. The Daily Mail, which is the the biggest selling newspaper in Britain at the time, very much takes an anti-Republican stance. Um, They are by no means pro Lago Caballero, who from September 1936 to May 1937 was joint Minister of War and Prime Minister of the Spanish Republic. They start to refer to him as the Spanish Lenin. 
they give the blanket term of all Republican supporters as just the Reds. Um, and they very much focus on the belief that they hold, which is that Spain will become a Soviet puppet if the Republic wins. Um, the Soviet Union has started arming the Spanish Republic, much like Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy had started arming the rebels. And the Spanish Republic had spent a lot of money acquiring war materials from the Soviet Union in the first 12 months, something around $100 million. Um, so they very much focus on this line of if the Republic wins, Spain will become just another satellite state of the Soviet Union that will essentially be annexed. And there are concerns in the, the upper echelons of British society about this. At the time, uh, people in Britain uh, have around £40 million worth of private investment in Spain, which they fear will be nationalised if the Republic wins because of the Soviet influence. So the, the Daily Mail very much reports this with those concerns at the forefront. In contrast, local newspapers can really scale down their reporting. They can focus more on stories of people from their local area who are fighting over in Madrid, if that's possible, which in some cases it is. Stories of people who've gone out to Spain and been killed or come back and given their story of what's happened over there are much more prominent in local newspapers than national newspapers for obvious reasons. So that that contrast between national reporting and local reporting gives a different perspective for a, a whole range of reasons. Do you know how papers are getting their information about what's happening in Spain? There's um, varied ways in which they get their information. I mean, to start with, Spain goes into a blackout, essentially, uh, and it's very much up in the air as to, to what is happening. Um, but first-hand accounts are really important. People send, uh, sending back reports. Um, people who are already over in Spain at the time. Uh, people who have made their way over. People who have maybe been in Spain when war broke out and then came back. Um, but again, the way that these are reported does change depending on the publication. So there is a story printed in the Daily Mail in 1936 towards the end of 1936, in which they detail a story about uh, a massacre of uh, Catholic clergymen in southern Spain. The source that they use for this is Francisco Franco himself, uh, senior general in the, uh, in the rebel army. Um, that, that isn't to say, obviously, that these, again, terrible things didn't happen. But like I say, the, the ways in which these are used and the people that are used when it comes to first-hand accounts uh, definitely does uh, make for interesting reading depending on what publication it is. I know there was a lot of humanitarian support for Spain that originated in Britain at this time. It seems to be organized around an aid spade umbrella. What was aid Spain and how was it set up nationally and, and locally? Well, aid Spain is a, a retrospective term given really to the umbrella organizations that um, 
that undertook uh, relief campaigns for, for Spain. So no organisation actually called Aid Spain did exist. Um, like I said, it's a, it's a retrospective term. The, the, the closest there was at the time to a sort of governing body that was in charge of aid to Spain was the uh, National Joint Committee for Spanish Relief. Uh, they were an umbrella organisation uh, which included people of varying different political beliefs. Uh, there was everybody in there from John McNamara, who was a Conservative MP, uh, Eleanor Rathbone, who was a, an independent MP, Wilfred Roberts, who was liberal, and they very much had the purpose of, through this umbrella organisation, raising as much funds for Spain as possible without the divisions of, of party politics. But the most interesting thing about A to Spain in Britain, and one of the things that really drew me to it, was that it, it's such a fluid movement. So yes, there was this sort of de facto centralised umbrella organisation, but actually there were so many different organisations across the country as well. Um, very independent, very local, and, and varied in what they were raising funds for. So the, the National Joint Council doesn't come about until the end of 1936. But war's declared, in, or war breaks out in July. And straight away in Britain, people start to raise funds. One of the ways in which they do this is they, they take pre-existing organisations that they already belong to, and they morph those into aid organisations. So at the time in Britain, there was uh, an organisation called the Left Book Club, which ended in the late 1940s, and I think has actually started up again recently in, in some form. But essentially it was, as you would expect, um, an organisation that distributed and promoted left-wing literature. And these groups were already organised with people of similar political sympathies. And they made great uh, vessels, essentially, to transform into an aid organisation. The structure was already there, the members were already there. So there's a, there's a contrast between, like I say, this sort of umbrella organisation and then the local independent organisations as well. You mentioned different political beliefs. How would the different political beliefs affect what these groups were doing? Or was it just, you know, you are too far left for me, so I'm not going to give you money, no matter what you say you're going to do with it? It, it does cause problems uh, more in the actual organizations themselves than how they attempt to interact with the public and at a grassroots level. So, as I mentioned, there's the National Joint Council, but the uh, Trade Union Congress, affiliated to the Labour Party, uh, refuses to work with communists and those affiliated to the Communist Party. There are aspects of the Labour Party and the TUC that are very sceptical and suspicious of communism and communists at the time. And there are some fundraising, uh, fundraising endeavours that they refuse to become involved in because they're too closely linked to the Communist Party. And that leads to the TUC deciding that there is official and unofficial relief work for Spain, official being relief work that doesn't involve the communists and unofficial relief work being the relief work that does involve the communists. Uh, 
But at a grassroots level, they try to avoid that. Like I say, these different organizations, they completely vary in how they can raise funds for Spain and how they can be organized. And they include so many different people of different political backgrounds and even people who are not members of political parties or maybe even apolitical. They just see this as the right thing to do, the humanitarian cause. So with regard to, and this is what my research specifically looks at, with regard to how the message is dispersed amongst the public in Britain, any overt mentions of party politics tend to be avoided. They focus more on the devastating effects of the war, the food shortages, the medical crisis, the refugee crisis that comes. And you see this on the actual uh, material itself, which is distributed to promote these fundraising organisations. Images of uh, families torn apart by war. Very, very rarely do these images include a man or a man of fit, healthy, fighting age. If, if men are depicted on these images, it is usually a frail old man. These images usually concern women and children. It promotes a sort of vulnerability of the Spanish people and their suffering. And it, it's trying to bring about an emotional response from the British Republic based on this being a simple case of right and wrong, rather than anything overtly party political. You mentioned leaflets and images there. How did these groups get information to as many groups as possible? You know, how did they, I guess, manage their public relations campaign? So some of, some of the most effective ways are just very simple and straightforward. They organize door-to-door leafleting campaigns, just as, as straightforward as that. So these are very, in some cases, so with regard to, to Sheffield, which is one of the examples that I look at in my research, one of the aid organisations there, because again, another aspect of this is that towns and cities may have more than one aid organisation, depending on what they're raising money for. It could be food or medical supplies. Um, one of the aid organisations organizations there that morphs from the Left Book Club, they have a very strict and regimented system where every Wednesday night they would go to different parts of the city, push flyers through the door, saying we're raising funds for x in spain we'll be back on friday please place any donations into this envelope or a lot of the times they were after canned food that could be sent over and they would come back a few days later and they would collect what these people had given um and these leaflets and and flyers sort of double up in their intent in a way. So the collection envelopes in a lot of cases that are pushed through the door and contain the information about we're raising funds for whatever it may be. A lot of the time they also mimic images that are seen on posters or in any other kind of um, environment. So you will start to see a poster depicting a refugee family which may be put up at an, an event at a, a town hall or a city hall where somebody is speaking. And then this exact same image is replicated onto an envelope, which is then put through someone's door when they are trying to uh, raise money for collections. So 
they very much take Spain out of the newspapers and almost into people's front rooms in a way with this imagery and with these these uh, leafleting campaigns. But also, like I say, there's uh, talks and rallies that are held, film showings. Uh, there's a huge variety of ways that they that they get the message out there. But yeah, some of the some of the simpler tactics are the, the more effective. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. You mentioned these different groups that are targeting different things. Were there groups that specialized in raising or are trying to get specific types of support, just money or, or maybe just food, for example, or something else? Yeah, yeah, there are. So with regard to food, uh, food, food ship for Spain, uh, there are several food ships that uh, take collections of canned and, and tinned food and powdered milk and other such supplies from Britain over to Spain for people there who are obviously experiencing the food shortages. Um, medical aid as well is another one. The uh, North Manchester Medical Aid Association set up in 1936 with Communist Party backing. They raised funds specifically for uh, being purchasing a medical equipment or even in 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 some cases to, to send over people who are medically trained uh, so yeah there, there, there are specific uh, there are specific aspects of relief which are targeted by certain organizations uh, but again a, a lot of the time because of the nature of this this fundraising the fact that it is so fluid you may get an organization that at one point raises money for this particular uh, aspect of relief and then a few months later is raising money for another. In some of the research I did for this interview, including some of your own writing, you mentioned something called milk tokens as a way of raising funds. So were there any sort of kind of unique fundraising campaigns or public awareness campaigns? I think milk tokens are pretty unique. And so were they found to be successful? The, the milk tokens is, is one of my favorite things. You, you can't really look at uh, British involvement with regard to aid 
and the Spanish Civil War without touching on, on milk tokens. It's a brilliant scheme. It's incredibly successful. And it really engages with the public. So the, the milk token scheme is set up by the, the co-op party. And the idea is that you can go into your local co-op store, which are everywhere in Britain. Even today, co-ops are just everywhere. Um, and for three or six pence, depending on what you can afford. So again, they're making this affordable for people who maybe don't have as much money disposable. For three or six P, you can buy a milk token and then that money is used to buy powdered milk, which can be sent over to give to Spanish children, young Spanish children who are experiencing the shortages of, of food and other supplies. And it, it's incredibly successful. It, it raises around £25,000 over the, through, over the uh, time that it, it, it exists. And uh, it's usually accompanied with quite, in some cases, distressing imagery. Uh, in some of these leaflets, again, in which the, the co-op milk token scheme is promoted, there will be pictures of quite dishevelled, war-weary looking children rags looking completely lost and, and hopeless and more often than not it comes with a direct appeal to the reader or to whoever is is viewing this particular image so quite often it will say things like what can you do to help or you know it will just very much bring home the vulnerability and the innocence of these children and uh, one really particularly sort of harrowing image uh, is a, a poster that is commissioned um, by the National Joint Council and designed by a by a Communist Party member, and uh, it, it speaks of the need to raise funds to buy milk to help these children, but it shows a very sort of artistic interpretation of an emaciated child and 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 their mother and it, it's really um, really quite shocking to see so like i say this very accessible very affordable means of raising money for something as simple as milk to help children um really was successful and, and, and really did appeal to people's emotions and, and their empathy and like i say it, it works very well another way that people in, involved in these organizations uh, one got the message out there, but two also raised funds was, was through film. Film and, and cinema as a medium was relatively new, late 1930s. Um, but, but during the, the First World War in, in Britain, when people would go to the cinema, before the shows started, they would usually be shown a short propaganda clip of, of how the war was going over in, on the Western Front, usually. Um, and certain organisations take this take the growing popularity of the cinema and they use it to the to the benefit of of spanish aid and and, and relief for spain so um one of the really successful films that is made and shown across britain is a film called uh, the defense of madrid which two years ago at the um, international brigade memorial trust conference the international brigade memorial trust is an organization set up to preserve and promote the 
history and the memory of the men and women who went from Britain to fight for the international brigades. Um, if anybody is interested in that aspect, they are well worth looking up. But two years ago, I was at their conference and they had the Defence of Madrid on microfilm, um, as it would have been shown then. And we watched it and this film travelled across Britain and was shown in cinemas and local town halls and all kinds of other venues. And it's a silent film, not very long, uh, showing day-to-day life in Madrid whilst it is under siege in, in late 1936. And some of the imagery is absolutely fascinating, but really quite emotive. It's destroyed houses, devastated streets, people rummaging, looking for their belongings in amongst the rubble. And then in some cases, just life going on as normal. People getting the bus to work or going to the shops. And it gives a real insight into daily life in a, in a city that is under siege. And again, it, it kind of, like I mentioned earlier with the leaflets, takes the conflict from the newspapers and really puts it in front of people for them to see. And the Defence of Madrid alone raised £6,000 across Britain. And it wasn't the only film. Um, Spanish Earth and, and, and other films, which involve people like Orson Welles narrating them. And, you know, things like this, they were, they were created and, and uh, toured, for want of a better word, across Britain to raise funds, and, and they're incredibly successful. The Civil War goes on for several years. Were there any problems trying to keep momentum going on these campaigns over time? Was there a kind of ebb and flow to support? There are, yeah. And that, that leads to some organisations having to change up how they do things. Um, the initial enthusiastic response, like I say, uh, like you alluded to, starts to wear off after three years. Of course, this is the 1930s. Britain itself isn't in the best situation economically. Um, you know, people don't have a lot to give. One of the most surprising and kind of heartwarming things that I've discovered in researching this is that actually in a lot of cases, it was people who had the least who gave the most. Um, some of the most successful areas up and down Britain where these aid groups campaigned and, and asked for donations were, were working class areas. Um, but after three years and with, like I say, Britain itself being in its own uh, financially difficult situation and so many different campaigns springing up, the, the donations do for some uh, relief organisations start to slow down. So in 1937, uh, there is a, um, there's a camp in Salford, just outside Manchester, which is set up for uh, assisting and helping and caring for a small number of children who have come over from the Basque region. Uh, as part of the Basque refugee crisis. And towards the end of 1937, donations for that particular camp and that particular organisation really start to slow down to the extent where the actual camp itself is disbanded and the children are sent to other ones across the country because there's just not enough money coming in to support it. Uh, so that there are aspects of, uh, of this where where funds and donations do slow down, but 
one of the most fascinating things that I found is that actually in, in some form, aid and, and relief actually carries on after the official end date of the conflict itself. Which is impressive given the overall situation in the late 1930s after the conflict ends. Yeah, very much so. I mean, those, a, a lot of those are for, it, it, then it, the sort of perspective then changes. So a lot of those are for uh, wounded uh, British citizens coming back who have been fighting with the international brigades or widows who obviously, you know, their, their husband has been killed fighting out in Spain. So the perspective changes, but the, the campaigning continues nonetheless, just in a different form. Thank you for joining me here today for this interview. It's been very enlightening. No, thank you very much for having me.